Hello and welcome to episode five of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I'm Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This is an exciting podcast today. This podcast is the end result of what began for me with an in-flight magazine. I was on a U.S. Airways flight, and I never fly U.S. Airways. I only fly Delta except for this one flight. I was bored. I picked up the in-flight magazine, and I found the abridged introduction to a book called Here is Where, a collection of forgotten stories from America's history wrapped into one giant travelogue. The intro hooked me. I went home that weekend, bought the book on Amazon, and the book lived up to everything the intro promised. I have on the podcast today... The book's author, two-time New York Times bestseller, Andrew Carroll. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Glad to have you here. And I really want to get into the book, both for its themes and for how you decided to craft it as a storyteller. But before we get into all that, why don't you give the audience a quick rundown of your own background, as well as the background of the Here Is Where project and the genesis for the book itself? Well, you know, probably the whole irony of all this is that I grew up truly like hating history. I was not the history buff, you know, when I was in, in high school and going into college. Right before uh, Christmas, my sophomore year, our house in D.C. caught fire and pretty much was gutted, and everything we had was wiped out. And it was it was really losing all of that family memorabilia that first got me interested in preserving the past. And I'll never forget. A couple weeks after the fire, one of our cousins, who uh, was an elderly uh, veteran from World War II, uh, you know, checked in just to see how we were doing. And he said, you know, it's funny because I've been going through some of my old memorabilia, and I came across some of the letters I wrote back to Betty Ann, uh, my wife, uh, when you know, I was in the war. And, I, and I'm going to send you some of them. And so he, he, I remember getting this one in particular. It was three pages long, and it was all about the Buchenwald concentration camp, which he had just walked through after it had been liberated. And it was wow. this absolutely, you know, this this haunting and just extraordinarily vivid account of what it was like to be an eyewitness to history. And so I called him up. I said, Jim, I'll send this back. He's like, No, 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 just keep it. It probably would have gotten tossed out anyway. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe that something so powerful and so significant might have been just thrown in the garbage. And so that really kind of sparked this idea of talking with veterans, like, what do you do with your old war letters? So I kind of developed this passion for, for wartime correspondences, and that's what became the Legacy Project. And there's actually a bit of news about we're changing that, which I'll, I'll get into later. But the um, uh, Dear Abby had been writing a lot of columns on veterans and military issues. So I wrote to her and I said, is there any way with Veterans Day coming up, you could help me spread the word about this little tiny effort to encourage Americans to save their war letters? This is back in 1998. And she said, yeah, let's do this. And so the <laughs> column ran in, in newspapers across the country. And I'll never forget, like three or four days after it appeared, the post office called. And I'd rented a little P.O. box just to have mail come in. And they were like, is this Andrew Carroll? And I'm like, yes, it is. And they're like, you got to get down here now. And I said, look, I'm, I didn't expect a response this quickly. I'll jump on my bike. I've got a huge backpack. I'll be there in like a minute. And the guy, I'll, I'll never forget, he's like, you're going to want to bring a car. He's, there were bins and bins and bins of letters coming in. And they were from all different wars, all different themes, like oh, combat, love. And it's like this treasure trove of these previously unpublished letters that had been sitting in people's attics and basements. So that's what became the Legacy Project. And as I was reading through the letters, um, you know, I, I come across these really extraordinary stories I'd never heard of, like the Sultana. Um, it's a, a ship that was carrying 2,300 Union soldiers who had just survived Gettysburg 
Andersonville, and the war was over. They were finally going home, and as the ship is like getting close to Memphis, it blows up, and more people died on the Sultana than on the Titanic, and yet you know, nobody knows the Sultana and everyone knows the Titanic. It's like, how does this get forgotten? So that's what sort of sparked. The, and then there was another story, too, from the Civil War that really launched the whole Here Is Where initiative. So the idea behind Here Is Where, as I saw it, based off of the introduction that I read and then, and then going through the book, is essentially the idea that there are all of these stories that, as you said, just get forgotten in time. And they're significant events in our history, in our nation's history, in the world's history, and yet, for whatever reason, they just get lost in the shuffle. And your idea here was to kind of bring some of these stories to light, but also explain why they matter in the present. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Uh, What I wanted to do was find stories in every state across America. And as you said, there are a couple criteria. They have to be nationally significant. It can't just be like the second oldest hotel in Texas. I mean, that's great, (laughs) but it's like, I want the oldest hotel in America. Now that that might be more of, you know, an interest. Uh, But then the key thing is it can't be marked. It can't have a historical plaque or sign. It's, it has to be the kind of place you walk right past it and don't even realize that it's significant. And that added, that wasn't just an arbitrary thing. I really wanted there to be a sense of discovery. And then in this age where everything you know, is, is mapped out, GPS tagged and so forth, there are still places out there that are, that are undiscovered and that we, we pass by every day without even realizing we're standing over or are literally the house that we live in. Um, uh, one of my favorite stories I worked on was about a, a prohibition agent named Richard Hart. And he uh, was famous for going across the country, busting up stills and catching bootleggers. I mean, he was more famous than Elliot Ness, uh, you know, before <laughs> Ness came along. And, and so I found a little house in Homer, Nebraska, where he lived. And the woman who owns the house is very nice. Let me come and you know see it and so forth. The significance of Richard Hart is his real name was Vincenzo Capone. He was Al Capone's older brother. And mm-hmm. so you have just this you know amazing fact that sort of the number one prohibition agent in America was related to the number one you know mobster in America. And most of the Capone brothers went into a life of crime. There are, I think, four or five brothers in all. But Richard, he changed his name from Vincenzo to Richard. Uh, and and he, he, there was this uh, w- um, Western kind of hero uh, whose name was Richard Hart that he really admired. So he, he, that's why he changed his name. And he wanted to get rid of the Capone name, too. But it's just this fascinating little, you know, like people who were neighbors to this guy had no idea until it finally came out in the media sometime afterwards. And it's like... We, you know, these buildings and these houses and taverns and, you know, all these little structures harbor secrets that uh, it's really exhilarating to, you know, to seek out and to find to bring attention to. There are so many forgotten stories here. In fact, in my case, they weren't even forgotten because other than I think Philo Farnsworth, the, uh, the literal inventor of television, I had not heard a single one. And uh, as someone who grew up in the New Jersey, New York area, and, and, and so many of the locations you pointed out, both on the East Coast and around the country I've been to, and, and then not really knowing some of the history that's occurred there, it was mind-blowing to me. And I wanted to ask you this, you know, and, and I know you've read the review that I wrote on the Telling the Story blog, and I, and I wrote this passage. I said, perhaps Carol's book will springboard these anecdotes back into popular culture. Perhaps not. Either way, the stories have happened, the people have existed, and our lives have been directly affected. And here's the beauty of the book. Even if you do not remember each of the individual anecdotes, 
you will gain such a vivid picture of our history from the totality of them. So my question to you here is, there, there are a couple of goals that you could have with a book like this, and maybe your goal was both of them, but is it more important to you that people remember the individual stories, the individual people and places you talk about, or that they take away more overarching lessons about our nation's history, uh, just society as a whole? Where are you focused, and, and what do you want your readers to really take away in that regard? That's a really good question, and I think it gets to the heart of the book because what what intimidated me about history growing up was all the memorizing of the places, the dates, the events, that sort of thing. It, it was really hard for me. Uh, I just I just don't have a good memory, and so I kind of threw my hands up and was like, "Look, I just I'm not I can't do this." And so I'm very empathetic to those who, when they hear like, "Oh, it's a history book," to me, it's almost more of a travel book. But, uh, oh, you know, it's a history book. Yeah, I'm not into history. I just, uh, it's not my thing. And I, I really understand that perspective. So I don't expect, I don't, I don't think that people have to go into this like, okay, there are going to be all these, you know, stories I've got to memorize and so forth to really get the significance. I think it's more the spirit of the book and touching on sort of your latter point of the overarching lessons that there are still all these great stories around us and they connect, they connect us in ways that we often don't even realize. I'll take just one example. Uh, you know, the common wisdom is that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928. He is considered the discoverer of penicillin. The truth is that when he announced his discovery, and it really wasn't a discovery, he didn't invent it. He stumbled upon it by accident. Uh, nobody really cared that no one really saw the use for it. And 10 years went by when as the war is coming in, it's 1938, 1939 in, in England, and again, Europe is already a mesh in the war, it would take us about two years later, but they knew that they were going to need some strong medicines and antibiotics to deal with all the mass casualties. So they were frantically trying to find something that would be more effective, and by sheer chance, uh, one of the scientists at the University of Oxford came across this article that Fleming wrote 10 years earlier. So they asked Fleming for the, the penicillin, they started working with it, they couldn't mass produce it. They literally couldn't do anything more than like petri dishes, and you know they were like literally taking cafeteria trays and 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 uh, bedpans and doing everything they could to try and grow the mold. They couldn't do it. They called the Americans and they found a USDA lab in Peoria, Illinois, and the, the British scientist was very kind of cloak and dagger. They literally smeared uh, the, the 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 spore the spores inside their coat pocket when they were coming from England to uh, to America because they weren't sure if the Nazis were following them and they had a valise filled with the thing but and with vials of it but they were afraid that might get stolen so this is like their backup plan but you know they got here safely and in working with these, this USDA lab in Peoria Illinois we figured out how to mass produce penicillin just in time for the D-Day landings and it's one of the kind of the the, the unknown stories of war. World War II, but the 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 use of penicillin uh, reduced our casualties significantly, where the Germans uh, were dying from wounds at a much higher rate, and it really helped shift the war. And what was amazing was that even in 38, 39, and then in the 40s when we were working on it, the, all the scientists went to the major pharmaceutical companies. They went to Pfizer. They went to all the big time, all the big time groups. They said, we're not interested. We don't think it's going to be profitable. Well, it's, it's now like literally, like, you know, netted trillions of dollars and saved hundreds of millions of lives. And it's all because of what happened in that lab. And the point is like literally every single person, um, you know, either knows someone or, or themselves has benefited from penicillin. And here are these doctors whose names, besides 
besides Fleming, you know, that most of us don't know, who have saved hundreds of millions of lives. I mean, they should be like rock stars. They should be, you know, there should be statues for these people. But they've all sort of escaped notice throughout history. So it reminds us of how much we owe people who've come before us. And, and I think that can even kind of change our world perspective, that we are the beneficiaries of so many other people whose names we've forgotten or have never really even known. And it's amazing in some of the stories. Uh, Philo Farnsworth is a great example. The uh, the laughing gas folks are a great example of people who they fight so hard for recognition in their time, and then they wind up just reaping so few of the benefits of that. Yeah, Nikola, and they Nikola, never see it. Absolutely, and, and Nikola Tesla, another person who I, I just sort of touch on in the book, but he eventually won the patent for being the inventor of radio, but he was already dead by the time the Supreme Court reversed the decision because they'd given, <laughs> given it to another inventor. And, uh, you know, the guy died penniless and, and, and alone in a New York apart, uh, hotel, and it's just one of these sad stories of here's a guy who, you know, was a genius, and... Uh, you know, it, you sort of wish he could be alive today to see if there's now an electric car named after him and, you know, and so <laughs> forth. Uh, but yeah. and Farnsworth is a perfect example. It was a real David versus Goliath story of this 14-year-old kid who really came up with the idea for electronic television. RCA later claimed that they were the ones who invented it, and it went into litigation, and the patent was awarded to Philo Farnsworth. But by the time it had all gone through, it became fair use, and then everybody could use it. And so he really didn't get the benefit. Um, and there's a story I don't tell in the book, which I thought was really poignant, because I, I also talk about Robert Goddard. He's an example of someone who, you know, Warner Von Braun on the NASA website is called the father of the American space program. And to Von Braun's credit, he said, before me was Goddard. I, you know, I was in knee pants when Goddard was really, you know, inventing this stuff. And, uh, you know, th 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 there is the Goddard Space Center named after him, but that was only also because of a patent dispute, and they had to name it as part of the, the lawsuit. But Goddard sort of got forgotten. And he wasn't alive when the, uh, you know, the astronauts made it to the, the Apollo 11 landing. And that, to me, was a really powerful story. But Philo Farnsworth was alive, and it was using the cameras that he invented that they were able to shoot back those images from the moon. And he was sitting there with his wife, Pam, watching the live broadcast of the first human beings to set foot on an extraterrestrial surface. And he said, you know what? This has made it all worthwhile. And just that little anecdote, I just find really moving that, you know, he had suffered so much throughout his life. And but that one moment kind of made it all worthwhile for him. One of the great things about your book is that it shows just the happenstance of history. You know, the, the folks that really want to change the world and really think that they're going to get the credit for it are the ones who wind up in the background. And then it's the folks who never intended to do something earth shattering or, or do something that got their name out there, wind up being the people who absolutely alter history. The, uh, the Nihau example in Hawaii, which I don't want to spoil that because it, it's one of my favorite stories from the book, and, and I don't want to give anything away about it. But it's the very first story about how one, about how one uh, plane crash into a, just a random island in Hawaii winds up changing internment policies on Japanese Americans during World War II, and it's fascinating. And, the, and the, the, I, don't, I don't want to give away the reveal either, but the only thing I'll say, what I, that, that story made, made me a little bit nervous because there is this issue of, you know, how it affected, you know, the internment of 120,000 people. 
But the great coda to the story is that the man who led the first ground invasion of World War II, which was on to Niihau, um, was a Japanese-American soldier who went on to fight with the famed 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the most highly decorated unit in American history. And so it, it added a nice positive element that, you know, that this guy representing so many Japanese-American heroes uh, was also part of the story. And so, you know, it's anytime I can try and get that emphasis, like, you know, the book obviously touches on some of the darker aspects of American history. You can't write a book about American history and not delve into slavery and to segregation and things like that. But my point was to focus on the heroes of those of those movements and to say that they represent the best of America, that, you know, they were yearning for freedom. They fought for it. They sacrificed for it. So that's what I really wanted to emphasize. Like, you know, one of my favorite examples is Irene Morgan. You know, when yes, I when I, I talk with story. you know high school groups and so forth, I say, all right, so you all know the story of the, you know, the brave African-American woman who refused to give up her seat on a bus and it led to a Supreme Court case and was pivotal in the civil rights movement. And everyone's going to say, you know, Rosa Parks, which is true. Irene Morgan uh, refused to give up her seat on a bus 11 years earlier. That, too, became a Supreme Court case and was a huge part of the civil rights movement. But Irene Morgan, you know, sort of got over overlooked. And part of it was because this happened in 1944 with the war raging. That's what, understandably, many people were focused on. But she was also a very humble woman who really didn't want any kind of attention. And so not that Rosa Parks did, but, uh, you, you know, the, the civil rights movement kind of, you know, took her story and made it prominent. And she was a very modest woman as well. Uh, but it just and, and the other difference with Irene Morgan, it, which is I find slightly humorous, is that she fought back a little bit. And when the deputies came on to arrest her, she and she writes this very delicately. She's like, I, I kind of kicked one of them in a very sensitive place. Um, and so, you know, just the fact that, you know, she didn't didn't go as quietly as Rosa Parks did was also considered a reason why she kind of didn't get the attention that Rosa Parks did later. So I wanted to ask you, and 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 before we get off that topic, that, that Irene Morgan chapter is also one of my favorites. I actually asked a co-worker of mine who went to Howard University if she was aware of Irene Morgan and how this woman who had, you know, as you said, just altered the history of uh, the modern civil rights movement turned down a degree an honorary degree from Howard and, yep. uh, and she had no idea and, and she was blown away by the story. So I just think, you know, I, I, I can think of about five examples of stories that I've just told people secondhand that again, makes them more aware of their own history. But I do want to get into the, uh, the craft and the storytelling behind this, because what is interesting to me and what I wanted to really delve into is how much of the process and how much of your vision was, clear from the start and how much you planned to learn as you go, as you went and and specifically I you know I look at what you did in this book where you know you had these grand themes but it was also a travelogue where you in the story of the book you make yourself a character and you learn a lot as you're going so I'm wondering how much did you have sketched out before you embarked on this journey, did you already have the main themes picked out? Did you already know where you were headed? And how much did you leave open just to the experience of going around the country and finding what you found? Boy, that's, I think that's really the key question about this whole book and, and what I was struggling with in the beginning. I knew from the start 
that I wanted to tell the story of America through these unmarked places. Going back to the first Paleo-Indians from 15,000 years ago, the Spanish explorers, the pilgrims, you know, the Puritans going to the American Revolution, um, you know, into the Civil War, and then even like the, the World War I and the, and the Spanish uh, pandemic, which a lot of people kind of know about but don't realize how much of an impact this had on America in the early part of the 1900s. Um, and then, you know, going through the Prohibition era and all these different, the Cold War and, and up to the space program and so forth and then modern times. And I felt, you know, I've been saving these little stories I've been clipping out of random uh, sources and, and or healing, hearing at cocktail parties. I'm like, oh, I want to look into that. And uh, so I felt like the overall framework was there. One of the biggest decisions was, did, you know, should I insert myself into the story or just make it a pure kind of like third person, uh, you know, little little chapters and so forth. And I, the reason I decided to put myself into it is because I wanted to convey the conversations I had with these extraordinary individuals, these local guides and historians who took time out of their day to take me around to show these places. So I kind of let them be the voice of the story and they would sort of tell the story as, you know, I, I had some sense of it, but they were really the true experts. So like with the Sultana, which I alluded to earlier, there's this amazing lawyer in uh, Memphis named Jerry Potter who wrote the book on the Sultana. And I called him up and I said, I really want to do something in this story. He's like, I'll take you to the site where the Sultana blew up. And it's the, the Mississippi is no longer there. It's been moved over so we can actually walk on the dry land. So as we're going to this place, he's telling me the story. And there are a couple times where I interject my own either thoughts or, or impressions on this. Um, in one case, I talk about how, as I was actually driving to the Paisley Caves, where the oldest human DNA was found, and that's the 14,500-year-old Paleo-Indians. Paleo um, so it's the oldest human DNA discovered in America. And I'm writing as I'm you know, going to find these caves, like my GPS system is screwing up, um, and I'm going off in the wrong direction, and my cell phone doesn't work, and all this stuff. And at the end of the story, I'm sitting around talking with the archaeologists and the students who are working on this dig. And I said to them, so, you know, what can we know about these primitive people just from their DNA? And uh, one of the students interrupted me and said, listen, I, I almost take offense at your use of the word primitive. These were really sophisticated people. They developed, you know, uh, you know sandals. They developed uh, these uh, um, uh, spear tips that were flaked in a certain way using heat temperature. Um, they, they created an atlatl, which is a very complicated hunting device. Uh, and they survived through the most, you know, horrific circumstances of weather and, and you know, uh, animals, dangerous, you know, animals and that sort of thing. So these were actually pretty smart people. And so my whole point was that we're so reliant on technology. And here were individuals who had nothing. They built everything themselves. They created everything. And so I want to kind of emphasize that point. So. Overall, I wanted the book to work on three different levels. Uh, there's a, you know, each story is a chapter, and then the chapters are grouped together by themes. So like we talked about Philo Farnsworth. There's a whole section on inventors, and I talk about the guy who invented the elevator brake, which sounds like a small thing, but no elevator brake, no skyscrapers. Skyscrapers, we now have like across New York, Chicago, Boston, you know, all these beautiful skylines. That's because the elevator brake. So uh, I, within those themes, um, you know, I, I explore larger topics, but then I really wanted the book from start to finish 
to work as one single narrative. So it's not just like, oh, let's flip to the main chapter and see what, or the New Hampshire chapter. It's, you know, hopefully one story flows to the next. And so that was the part that really took a lot of work uh, to make sure that it didn't feel contrived or disjointed, but that you really were like, when you get to the end of the chapter, like, oh, wait, okay, hold on, this, this story continues. And then you, you know, you jump into the next chapter and, and it just keeps going. Obviously, you are a giant fan of history and preserving the past. But I wonder about whether you believe that others and, and you know the world around you is as interested in that. Because it seems to me, it certainly seems as if you're really trying to work very hard in the book to make these historic stories... Um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but maybe more digestible for a modern audience. And, you know, you think in the Internet age, the importance of history seems to pale in comparison to the importance of the absolute present, right? You know, we've never had more tools to record and preserve our memories. And because of that, we become so consumed in documenting the present that we really don't pay a lot of mind to the past. And, And in talking with you now, it really seems as if there was an effort on your part to take a book that is essentially about history but make it as relevant to the present as possible no i think i think that's absolutely true and I didn't want this to be a dense academic tome that people felt like it was eating their vegetables. I really wanted, like, this is just dessert straight on through. But hopefully, um, and I'm really drawing out a bad analogy here, but hopefully a healthy dessert. That it's, you know, that you, <laughs> you know it's like, it, it's it's uh, very approachable. It doesn't, it's not intimidating history. It's just, it is stories. And I think even though these stories may have taken place 50, 20, 100, 200 years ago, they're still relevant. They're still about humanity. They're still about fear and hope and resilience and, and all the different human emotions that we can all relate to. And that's something that the War Letters Project really taught me because I was thinking, like, oh, I'm going to read these letters from the Civil War, the Revolution. They're going to be really boring and, and just, you know. But, you know, they're describing these battles and incidents that happened to them. And it's just electric in some cases with, with the descriptions and the narrative. And you, you just get pulled into it. And it makes it, it makes it human and real. And that's one of the reasons why I try to pick on individuals for each of these chapters, like Philo Farnsworth or Irene Morgan, and kind of use them to tell a larger story about what was going on in the civil rights movement or in technology and innovation, you know, with respect to Philo Farnsworth. So I'm like talking about other inventors who are alive at the same time. And I do a story on the first car in America, and it turns out that it's electric. Uh, the first automobile in the U.S. was actually an electric car. It preceded the fuel car. And so I go into, like, Thomas Edison and Ford talking back and forth, where Ford was like, should I do the electric car? And, said, and Edison's like, no, don't do it. It will never catch on as much as the fuel car. And to be honest... So to date, he's kind of proven to be true that all the complaints that people had back then about electric cars that they didn't, you know, they couldn't go as far, they weren't really as reliable, um, you know, and it's still why people and, and and they were you know much more expensive is still a hundred years later pretty much the same, and so. I think people can connect to these things because they are timeless. And and those are the stories I wanted to focus. You you mentioned the anesthesia chapter. I mean. Just imagine life, uh, a surgery, or going to the dentist without anesthesia. And I, mm-hmm. I, ha- I found a letter by a woman who described going through an operation while you are fully conscious. And, and that's the kind of thing where it's just sort of like a modern-day horror story of, oh, my God, can you imagine what this was like? And thank goodness for the people you know, who, who, who brought it to life. 
I uh, I'm reminded of the uh, the great podcast Ninety Nine Percent Invisible with Roman Mars, where he uh, he had an episode a couple of months ago where he talked about in the early days of the automobile how pedestrian deaths were a huge issue because people were so used to playing in the middle of the road because they didn't have to worry about you know speeding cars zooming past them and they wound up uh, the campaign that the auto companies came up with was very similar to what you hear gun rights advocates saying now that, you know, cars don't kill people, people kill people, or, right. you know, it, it's more about the decisions that people make. And, and yeah, it really, it, to me, what I, what I just love about the book is how it really does show that we are not so far removed from the past in any way. And, and, and you mentioned the, uh, you know, the whole section on just some of the horrors of American history. And to me, that was, arguably the most powerful because you know as civilized and as advanced as we all like to think our modern society is it wasn't that long ago that some pretty horrific things were happening and it does i think make you re-examine some of the ways in which we live now and how folks 50 60 years down the road are going to look at our society no absolutely and and that's one of the things i want to be careful of of, of making sure you know, there's a story I do on the orphan trains, which I'm adopted. And so anything having to do with adoption or, or foster care has a big impact on me. And this is during, you know, in the late 1800s, they would literally pluck homeless kids off of the street, put them on trains and ship them out to the Midwest. And there was no real kind of vetting process to who the parents who would accept them. A lot of times they were really used as like farm labor. And so these are little kids who are out in the farms and, you know, just because they had a place to stay. And at first, I was really negative about the story because I thought, I mean, my God, it, it, there's almost something Nazi-ish about this of like, you know, forcing people onto trains, sending them out, you know, and and making them work. Uh, and I called the the museum that focuses on. It, I said, listen, of course there were some horrible stories and there were some terrible things that happened to some of these children. But what you have to remember is what life was like for a homeless child in a major city. It was disease. It was they were you know taken advantage of. They were beaten up, and the person who started this program really wanted to get them out in the great outdoors in a safe place where they would have food and all these things. So, you know, it does sound horrible to a 21st century concept that, you know, people would just put these kids on trains without really checking out who the parents are who are going to be accepting them. But in some ways it was better than the alternative. And so that was a story where I did kind of impose my own views both as first of being that, boy, you know, I'm kind of negative about this to being much more understanding of at least what the motivation was behind the people who started this program. And so it was, uh, you know, that was one of those things where I was like, all right, I can't look through this purely through a 21st lens. I have to understand what the intentions were of the people who were doing it at the time. And you do include at the end of the chapter that one example of, uh, of someone who had been orphaned at the or had been on the orphan train. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. for it. Yeah, I mean, she's like, the, the the parents that she was, you know, ended up with abused her, and so you kind of like, well, yeah, here we go, this is why this is a thing, she said, but tell you, you know, the alternative would have been much worse, and the orphan train was the best thing that ever happened to me, so, you know, she encapsulated in her comments, you know, the, the ambivalence and the, the, the dichotomy that was really prevalent at the time. It is, uh, again, the book is Here is Where, the author is Andrew Carroll here on the Telling the Story podcast, and uh, and it is a terrific, terrific read. I highly recommend it, and there will be links on our website to how you can get a copy of it. Uh, as we move on, Andrew, I, I, you know, every guest I've had on this podcast, we talk about their advice for young storytellers, and I wanted to 
delve into that a little bit with you, and, and especially in terms of how you became a writer. I was reading your bio, and, and it's fascinating to me because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like when you were in college, you know, you founded the American Poetry and Literacy Project through which you distributed hundreds of thousands of free poetry books to the public, which is phenomenal on its own. You also co-wrote a book. And I I wonder, do you, do you have a master plan at the time, a kind of a dream that you wanted to fulfill or aspire to? Or, or was your attitude in college and as a young adult simply to follow your passions and let them take you where they would? Yeah, absolutely the latter, to follow your passion. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And it was not, I didn't become an English major and get into writing because that was my first choice. I was terrible at math and science and history and languages. <laughs> and English was sort of, all, and, I, and even you mentioned the Poetry Project, that was the idea of a Nobel laureate named Joseph Brodsky, who was a Russian, came here, and he said, you know, you Americans have this great tradition of poetry, but you don't even read it. And I was more interested in books. Like, I've always loved books. And so he's like, books should be given out in public places. And so that's, I was like, look, I'll handle the distribution part. You be like the poetry guy. And so we, you know, we had this funny sort of relationship uh, of this college kid and this very distinguished Nobel laureate, but it sort of worked. And we gave out actually almost a million books. And then uh, I just got more focused on the War Letters Project. But that was some of the most exciting times I had in my life was driving cross country, handing out books in schools and hospitals and prisons and, you know, you name it. Uh, and we gave out, you know, again, uh, almost a million of them. But uh, I think I, oh, I do hear from a lot of younger people who want to be writers. And I think the best advice that I was ever given and I would convey to others is, you know, don't write to be published. That write because you love to write. Write because it changes your view of the world. Write because it makes you more perceptive and more attentive to what's around you because you see people differently and you want to record these thoughts or get down, you know, experiences you've had. I think if you go into like, I want to write a book. That, you know, may not be the best way. And I, I never I never even thought I was going to do a book of war letters. I never, when I was collecting these stories of, of unknown historical sites, there was never an intention of doing a book in the first place. I just love the stories. And so, you know, I've always wanted to give a speech on the myth of passion. And we tell people, like, find your passion. Passion isn't singular. Passion is a perspective. It's like the way you look at the whole world kind of excites you. And that, to me, is the greatest thing that a teacher or a parent, I've been very lucky that my parents always encouraged my brother and, and, and me to be readers. Um, but, you know, that's why I dedicate the book to the teachers I've had in my life. And I, and I use the, a line about how education really kindles the fire. And, and I thank them for igniting that, that spark because that's what they really did. And that's what I think the best teachers do. And it's it's why I wanted to really dedicate this book to the people who've changed so many lives in classrooms across America. How did you develop as a writer then? Because obviously, I mean, uh, from what I know about you, you've written a few books, but I, I, I don't know that you've done much writing beyond that. And yet to read here is where it's, it's very polished and such a great, and you, you clearly show such a great grasp of how to tell a story that brings in even a casual observer. So where did that develop? Well, I, well, you're very kind to say that. I, it's funny. I read, the, I read the book. I'm looking at all the places I wish I could change and make better. But I had a great editor, Rick Horgan, uh, you know, and, and he was a really good guiding hand and saying, you know, here's what's working, here's what's not working. But I think it's also every writer has to be a reader. 
And, you know, you don't want to copy someone else's style, but you have to sort of get a sense of what else is out there. And, like, I love John Steinbeck. He's not the most florid writer, but he tells a great story. I also love Nabokov. I don't think he's actually the best storyteller, but goodness, his use of language is like nothing else I've ever read. Um, it, it just, uh, the best description I've ever heard is that he has these flashing, floating lines, and that's exactly it. They just almost burn off the page. They're just so beautifully written. So these are two very different authors with very different styles, and I've, I've hopefully, you know, would like to think that I've learned from both of them. And so uh, poetry is great because it's condensed little, you know, either stories or images and so forth. But I also love reading, you know, 1,500-page Russian novels. So I think it's very important for anyone who wants to write, you've got to read, and you've got to read all different types of genres. Do you kind of uh, envy the uh, the young kids coming up in that, you know, I know you graduated college, uh, I would say a good five, ten years before blogs really took off, before the Internet really took off, and before, you know, the amount of writing that was readily available just skyrocketed, and now... You know, I, I did a post a, a few weeks ago about how sports journalism has changed in that so many fans are writing now and they generate and, and contribute content in such a different way that any sports fan can find, you know, sports fans, no matter why you watch, you can find a blog or a website that fits your desires. And it certainly seems as if the web is providing young writers not only with a chance to provide content but also to take it in and to see the different ways in which people are doing it. Well, right, and with self-publishing, I just read a USA Today article about, I think he's a 15-year-old kid who has this, a novel coming out that's actually getting a lot of attention. And there is this sort of a democratization of the process where you know anybody can write a novel, put it online, have it be, you know, you can download it and so forth. And, and the same thing with, with music and many other different art forms. The only thing I'm a little torn on, and, and I, I have young, you know, assistants who are younger than me. They're in their 20s, and, and, and I've worked with some high school kids who are just exceptionally bright. And, and, and they're very good at this, but I do wonder overall how much the art of conversation is being lost. In an age where we're used to 140-character texts or tweets, um, where people even calling on a cell phone is sort of considered passe. It's, you know, people insta-message each other. And... I just wonder how much, you know, because the art of conversation is so much a part of the art of writing that it's, it's about listening and not just about talking and telling. And so I, I do wonder about that impact. I don't know. I haven't read any studies on it. I, I can't. I, almost, I just have a visceral sense of I wonder if we are losing something. Families don't sit and have dinner together anymore. You know, half are off watching television, the other half are texting. I think in that sense we are losing something. Uh, but on the other hand, Anyone can break through if you've got a great idea and you, you know, uh, put it together, you put it online, you can be a sensation. And there's something really wonderful about that, that you don't have to go through agents and publishers. In the music scene, you look at Macklemore. I mean, here, here's someone who's yeah. done it all on his own, and he's become a huge success. And that is, I think, there's something really wonderful about that. Andrew Carroll, by the way, for those of you scoring at home with, at the time of this recording, 49 tweets to his name at this point. So <laughs> very much, uh, uh, would you say that you've been hesitant to get into uh, the, even, the branding even, of social media? Yeah, and what's even worse about that, that's over four years. I did like 30 of them three years ago, <laughs> stopped and just, you know, and the one thing I promised people is I'm not going to tweet about insignificant things. You know, every tweet is going to be a little story or about something, an event that I, you know, I hope has greater meaning 
meaning. Um, I was tempted to tweet about the fact that as I was coming back from Madison, Wisconsin, we were putting up a, a marker for John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club and really the modern environmental movement. Um, I was I love Wisconsin because I love German food. So at the airport, I got all this bratwurst and sauerkraut and stuff like that. I opened it up on the plane, not realizing that the entire it would just completely just stink up the entire aircraft until literally one of the stu- the flight attendants came and said to me. Could you please finish that as quickly as possible? Because everyone's complaining <laughs> about it. And I was like, that might not be a bad tweet, but I'm like, no, I'm not doing like what I'm eating. So I really, <laughs> I try and be very selective uh, of what I tweet about, uh, but I probably should do it more regularly. I, uh, I I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. To be honest, I, I, I think Twitter. Uh, I've I've heard discussions about Twitter being both enormously positive and also the bane of existence. And I'm not sure which way I'm leaning yet, but uh, what, what I do appreciate your perspective. On and I know, I know we're getting close, but I just want to, what, what cracks me up is that um, William Wordsworth wrote like 120 years ago, the world is too much with us. And I just want to be like, dude, what are you talking about? What did you guys have a hundred and some years ago that was like so overwhelming? Try living in an age of email, Twitter, you know, blogs, et cetera, where, you know, as an author, you've got to do all these things constantly. I, I can't imagine the world being any less with us than, you know, back in his time uh, where you don't have to deal with all these interruptions and so forth. So I, I, I will say I'm a little old fashioned that I kind of miss that era where it, it just seemed a little bit quieter and you could get through the day without having to respond to 10,000 different things. Uh, but I know this is the, you know, this is the wave of the future for authors and for everybody. So uh, my publisher has told me, you know, sorry, but you got to do it. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the one thing I will say real quickly. What I would the, the reverse is I love to hear from people and about their favorite stories and that's what has been great um, coming into the website and to my email and to the you know the tweets saying hey here's a story you may not know about that's what I find wonderful about it and so I you know absolutely encourage your listeners if they have a great story that they want to share please let me know about it for sure. And, uh, Andrew, that's all the questions that I had. But as always, as any good journalist and storyteller, I always like to give you the last word. Anything else that we haven't touched on that, that you feel is significant? No, I think we've really covered it all. Um, you know, again, this, this project is about inspiring people to see the world in a new way, about realizing that there are all these great stories around us that we, that we often overlook. And it's, it's a group effort. Like, I love sharing the stories. And I love people who uh, send in their own ideas. So hopefully it'll just keep building. And, you know, my dream is that people will start putting up markers in their community and it'll be inspired, you know, by something they, they came across. And uh, I'm actually heading off to New York. We're, again, putting up a marker where the first cell phone call in history took place and we're having a big bash for it and so forth. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I want people to have that same sense of fun and exhilaration because that's what this project is all about. Outstanding. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations on Here Is Where. Thank you. All right, and the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks to Andrew Carroll, and we'll see you next time.